So this morning, I want to explore uh, the theme that we've been exploring for the last uh, number of times that I've been here, uh, which is how we move from what we could call the ordinary habitual mind to Buddha mind. And I'm using mind as shorthand for mind, heart, and body. In other words, how do we move from our more unawake and conditioned qualities of our being to being awake? And this is the seventh exploration in that series. Uh, uh, The whole series came unexpectedly when I gave a talk, I think, uh, I don't know, February maybe, on uh, especially honoring Mary Oliver, the poet who had just died. And I did a talk based, I developed a talk based on the sense of uh, the stages of spiritual development as I found in her poem, The Journey. And by the way, that talk and all the other talks in the series are on the website Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D dot org. No no talk these days is complete without at least one web reference. (laughs) So, uh, so, and in that uh, talk, I, I was identifying like the starting point for the whole spiritual journey as being when we kind of take life for granted and we're just caught in our conditioning, in our ordinary habitual mind. And it can take many, many forms and shapes, you know, from, you know, from the social conditioning to the family conditioning to what's happened from our life experiences and so forth. And so... On the basis of that, I thought, well, it's really helpful to look at all the different parameters of what we can call our ordinary habitual mind. Because actually, even after we've, as it were, entered on the spiritual path, that ordinary habitual mind doesn't immediately leave. Have you noticed? (laughs) It's still there, right? In many ways, even if uh, maybe other more awake qualities are there as well. And in fact, uh, I know we were, I was, uh, yeah, I was working with someone who uh, just in the last week or so who was saying, you know, one of my major issues is how do I, how do I hold together the fact that I have both a certain amount of awakeness but I also have places where I'm not awake. And how do I actually hold those together? You know, it's confusing, right? It's like, who am I, right? And so forth. And so what the series is doing is really looking at a number of different parameters of the, uh, what I'm calling the ordinary habitual mind. Again, that's code for mind, body, heart, the way we live, behavior, and so forth. And uh, we've looked so far at three of a list of 10 that I originally formulated. We're on the fourth of the 10. Okay. And the, the other three that we've looked at were uh, something like ordinary habitual thinking, the way the thinking mind typically works. The second was having to do with uh, the ordinary conditioning, both uh, of the body and how we understand the body. A lot of it looking to conditioning to be disembodied or to be thinking all the time and so forth. And the last two times we've looked at the conditioning around what we sometimes call the heart, the emotional life, the capacity for kindness, care, and love. And we looked at that the last two times. And today the theme I want to look at is the Uh, nature of the self, and particularly the ordinary habitual uh, conditioning to think that we are separate, independent, and permanent, even when we know better, (laughs) right? And it's going to be looking into this actually very mysterious topic called the self, one of the most confusing, 
and complicated areas of practice and of life. Who am I? There's a poem by Rumi, which uh, the the Sufi poet who whom I like to quote sometimes, and he he has uh, I think it's the poem called the Tavern, which beautiful poem, and he he says uh, I'm just I'm just uh, <clears throat> you know I'm ju- I don't know who I am, I keep asking, I have to break out of this tavern for drunks, you know, who am I? I don't know. Right? And there's a way that the topic is uh, very mysterious and confusing. And if it wasn't confusing enough, just to start with, then the Buddha comes along and he offers a teaching called not-self. Anatta can make it even more confusing. You know, and there are a lot of jokes about this. There's, some of you know, there's a very rich uh, contemporary tradition of what's called Jewish Buddhist humor, which has especially developed on the internet. Sylvia has made her contributions to it. <laughs> uh, I, I won't, maybe I have too. Um, and there's a, uh, one of the... Uh, jokes in this trove of humor goes like this. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there's no self. I guess we're off the hook. <laughs> right, and it's, it's a, it's, you know, I've talked sometimes about how this is a confusing area, but, you know, I remember... Uh, hearing a story of a young man who went to a meditation retreat was told there was no self and immediately left the retreat saying, if there's no self, what's the point? And he also, uh, yeah, I mean, I hope he's okay. I learned he, he dropped out of college and he just, he was at a loss because if there's no self, what's the point? So very confusing and uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, it's confusing. You find texts in which the Buddha, a very famous text, the Buddha is talking to a wandering yogi who comes up and asks him, is there a self? And the Buddha doesn't respond. He stays silent. And then he, the wandering yogi asks, then is there no self? And the Buddha stays silent. And the wandering yogi just leaves <laughs> at that point. And later... Uh, Later, the Buddha's asked, why didn't you tell him? Why didn't you tell him about the teaching of not-self? And he said, if I had said there was a self, he would have been very confused. If I had said there is no self, he would have been very confused. So I stayed silent. Does that clarify everything? (laughs) Right, so anyway, and uh, I could go on like this for for a while because I've been a student of how there's confusion. One of them I find major confusions also is that people often use the word ego. Maybe you do too, and say we have to go beyond the ego. What is you know? What does that mean? That's confusing too. You know why? Because in Western psychology, ego is often used as a neutral term, simply and as you know, it's a bad translation from Freud. Uh, uh, but it basically means it's kind of a neutral way that we organize experience around uh, individuality. And it's not taken to be having to do with being egocentric, which is what the word has come to mean. And so, okay, is that enough to make my case that it's a very confusing topic? <laughs> okay. And there are even further confusions because a lot of the mystery of self is that we often have to develop a sense of self before we go beyond it. In other words, one of the ways which we sort out some of the confusion is to have a developmental perspective. You know? But there are a lot of people who want to get really quickly to not-self, and they engage in what we sometimes call spiritual bypassing, which adds another level of confusion to it. People want to get to, oh, I'm beyond the sense of self, I'm beyond ego. Right, and they actually one of the definitions of spiritual bypassing is using spiritual rhetoric 
to ignore urgent developmental tasks. And I've had conversations with people who wanted to tell me how deeply spiritual they were and I disappointed them by saying, I really suggest you get a job. (laughs) Right, so there's this whole area. Anyway, you see each of these areas we could spend more time in. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's it's a confusing area. And so the way that I have found it skillful to approach this whole area is to keep it really practical. And the way that I'm going to... uh, get at how to look at this practically is very similar to what we did in the guided meditation. And I'll I'll come back to this, but it'll have two components. The first is we look at where there's a thick sense of self, where there's a kind of a a big sense of self, not as something pathological, not as something to get rid of, but we just study it. We study the self. We get to know uh, where there's a strong sense of self, whether through self-image, reactivity, a lot of thinking or whatever. And we learn. And the second way that we work with it practically is we learn uh, in meditation and in uh, everyday experience to access ways of experiencing in which the self is increasingly thinned out or non-existent. And I and I'll I'll come back and say that that is actually an extremely common experience. Many of us, our best moments, we have almost no sense of self, like when we're very close to people and we're not self-conscious and we're just with the flow of the relationship or we're just in, uh, we're immersed in the forest or the mountains and there may be not much sense of self or we're immersed in an activity. We sometimes call this being in a flow state, right? You look at those states, there's almost no sense of self and we would mostly say those are some of the most valuable experiences of our life. So that's how I'm going to work with this. Number one, look at where the self is thick, and number two, learn how to go into uh, where there's less sense of self. And there are a lot of complexities that I'll come back to that. So the, the structure uh, that I've been using for the, these talks on going from the ordinary habitual mind to the Buddha mind, in, in my language, I've been using a, a threefold structure uh, which is to uh, really first uh, first look at what is the ordinary conditioning around a given aspect of our experience. Secondly, what does it look like that aspect of experience is like for the Buddha or for someone who's awake? And then thirdly, how practically do we get there? So that's the structure I'm going to use. What's the nature of the conditioning? Uh, what does it look, what's the Buddha mind look like, as best we can tell? <laughs> and then thirdly, how do we get there? How do we practice? And I've already, in our guided meditation, and what I just said, given hints, not more than hints of the practice. Okay? But we'll come back to that in more depth. So, um, so the Buddha, when he was talking about... Uh, the self being an issue, particularly focused on how, and this was referring to the sense of self in the India, what we now call the India of his time. And he was questioning the sense of self as permanent, independent, and separate, right? And all of this goes into a significant part of our experience. So that's what he was saying. So we could ask, Uh, why is there a problem about thinking that we're separate? Why is there a problem about thinking that we're permanent? Why is there a problem about thinking that we're independent? You know, what's, what's the problem? Isn't that just how things are? Anyone think about your response? Why, why might that be an issue? Anyone have any initial uh, response? Maybe just in a phrase. Uh, what? No connection. Loss of connection. Right? We can be. Yeah, we can. Be, yeah, we can. We could use the mics. That would be great. Uh, no connection. That we are. We're independent. Uh, we're, you know, just caught up in our own world, right? And not connecting with others. So there's that tendency, at least. 
what else what else might be a problem about the sense of a, a very separate self yeah um it's a lot um that it could be an it's an illusion of the mind yeah that is a kind of an illusion you know uh, and i'll come back to that i'll also use the word construction sometimes a useful construction but it's not you know the the buddha will say it's not actually how things are again we don't see that so easily but that's we'll come back to that but yeah let's let's use the mic would that make it a delusion then? Yeah, yeah, it's a kind of delusion, the Buddha would say. Sometimes uh, a useful construction, and that's where it gets complicated, right? That's where we go, might go to the complicated sense of you have to have a self before you go beyond the self. Okay, please. Okay. Um, well, I think it would lead to more divisiveness, everybody out for themselves as opposed to working together Yeah. for the greater... It would lead good. to being uh, divisiveness, to a sense of separateness. Uh, uh, we can see how that sense of separation is linked to any number of social issues, right? You can point to uh, most any social issue and we can see some roots in a sense of difference or separation or what sometimes is called othering you know you know this this person or this group is other than me or other than my group in the back please Um, as far as our body is concerned, I think that's scientifically inaccurate because obviously we accumulate this body from the earth and all the components um, is we're not separate. We, we are constantly in exchange with the nature. But yeah. what I find confusing is the spirit is whether we are separate or we are merged with. That's, that's the part that I don't know or cannot fathom. Yeah, I yeah very so confusing. Two, two interesting points. One is uh, that if we look at our bodies, for example, as part of what we call nature we can see that there's a continual flow of elements, of causes and conditions, and that, uh, you know, the cells in my elbow might have been there shortly after the Big Bang. <laughs> right? And that's pretty interesting, right? And that means that we, that we actually uh, might not see things accurately, and that even that uh, natural science might help us. And then the second one was whether we uh, see ourselves as separate and we actually uh, ignore what we sometimes call spirit, not in, it's not so much Buddhist language, but I'll come back to something like that, that we ignore the depths of our being, which we could call spirit or awakening, and that that sense of separateness doesn't make sense of that, or it's, it's uh, cut off from that. Yeah, I'm gonna take a few more. Yeah. Yeah. You use the descriptor permanent. Yeah. That occurs to me as a word that has little meaning except for to describe a thing that doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, that, we, that if we think ourselves permanent, again, intellectually, you know, it's, this is sometimes manifest in an exercise I occasionally do. We, I don't know if we can, should do it here. But I sometimes ask people, how many of you think you will die? <laughs> and... Uh, hands, uh, and you know, when I do that, they're typically less than 50%. <laughs> and hands go up slowly, right? So what is that about? And so there's, there's uh, that's interesting, right? That we, uh, uh, you know, on one level, we know that's, that we're not permanent, but on another level, we don't believe it. Right? So it's interesting. It's, uh, again, I'll come back to that. It's one of the reasons why Death and dying is a powerful area to explore. Maybe I'll do two more. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say that when we feel separated, a big sense of loneliness settles in that um, also leads to the ego taking over. So yeah. when there's you know a lot of ego and loneliness, it just feels like it's the source of suffering, right? So the more separated yeah. we feel... Um, 
people suffer more, I think. Can be, if we have a sense of separateness, it can be connected with a lot of suffering. You know, loneliness, you know, probably we'd find something like that in a lot of forms of depression, right, or despair, that uh, those could be connected with a certain sense of self that's got very strong. Maybe one more, if there is anyone. We got, oh, okay, I see two hands went up at the same time. I'm going to call that a tie, and and give room for both. And that then we'll then we'll come back. Yeah. Um, I've I've given a lot of thought over time to human nature. Yeah. Hear about human nature, and it, it it it's come to me that it's actually used to mask the things that we do that are not good for us. Yeah. Um, for instance, it, it, if we feel a part of, we would generally feel either greater than or less than. Yeah. And I don't find either one a comfortable place to be. I think that we're so much better off when we're a part of and one of. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, people would say it's human nature to, to do that, but you yeah. Know, really, maybe we say human unity conditioning is yeah. is important. So yeah. that separateness, it, in reality, it doesn't it doesn't wash. Yeah. Thank you. You know, one one point I'll take from that, especially, is that uh, um, when we have that sense of separation, there's very strong tendencies to think I'm better than, or I'm worse than. Right, very strong. The passage in the, where the Buddha says actually, even to think I'm the same, equal to, is a problem as well. <laughs> he thought, you know, an interesting passage. Yeah, but uh, and so we can see how that sense of separateness may lead to a sense of better than or worse than, both of which are connected with major issues. We can see. Yeah. Please. No, just leading um, on what you said there, the, the separateness in self can, I think, lead to the um, like material or uh, personal um, need or attachment. For? Attachment yeah. to those things. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah that a sense of separateness can be connected with grasping mm-hmm. of different kinds, right? Yeah, or I'm separate... Therefore, I need you. A lot of relationships can be based on that sense of separateness and grasping onto another to avoid what's taken as the pain of separateness, which again in the teachings doesn't actually exist. <laughs> right? So it's a uh, issue or a solution, we might say, to a pseudo-problem. Again, one that's common to the conditioning. So this is great. Um, I, I tried to answer my own question myself and you went a lot of the places I would have gone so I'll be brief because you've done a lot of the uh, talk. Thank you. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll say the, um, the short answer from the Buddhist tradition as to why a sense of separate, independent, permanent self is a problem is that it's connected with greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the Buddhist response to the question, what's the cause of any problem? <laughs> right? That's, that's shorthand. But we can kind of unpack that, uh, that uh, to, you know, in various ways. And this is something that we have to, as it were, confirm ourselves. But it's actually not true that we're separate, independent, and permanent. You know, as you were, you were saying, in terms of permanence, probably most obvious. But uh, again, we, I think you were saying that it's a kind of an illusion, right? That, uh, uh, again, this is not to be taken on faith, but just to explore it yourself. And, uh, and maybe this will go into a little more depth. I might do that uh, next time I come to go into more like that. But the uh, claim is that when we actually look carefully at our experience, we don't find a permanent, independent, a separate self. We find something like a self, but it's more, maybe more of a construction or more of a fabrication. That can be useful. Again, that can be useful at times. So this would be, as we were saying, a, a way that the, the sense of self is a, is a delusion. 
so we don't see the impermanence of the self common, commonly. We don't see the constructed nature of the self, you know, the way that our sense of self was in a way uh, the product of all sorts of uh, upbringing, social norms, social conditioning, and it has a certain value, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of construction. And this is what a lot of contemporary psychology would say the, exactly the same thing. There's a whole, there's even a, a branch of contemporary psychology, probably as many of you know, that's called constructivist psychology, really looking into the, the way the self is constructed. Um, second major reason, I started with delusion, <clears throat> believing in a separate self leads to all sorts of reactivity, to grasping after what is pleasant for the supposed self and unpleasant for the supposed self, pushing that away. And that can manifest in all sorts of phenomena, being judgmental of self, of others, fear, various forms of uh, aversion, pushing away. Uh, We want to, uh, and then grasping after what we think affirms affirms the, the self. Again, this is complicated, so I'm going to try to go into a little more depth on that. We can look at that also in the discussion. Because, uh, as I'm going to say, uh, a useful way to look at the sense of self is to have a developmental sense where it's actually skillful to have a certain sense of self and have that be there intact but then at a certain point, we start going beyond that. That makes it complicated, right? Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that. So another reason why that, that's connected with what we looked at uh, uh, last, last two times is that often the sense, the strong sense of self can block love, can block care, can block, block some of our depths. You know, and again, I, I, we'll, come, we'll come to this in a moment, but I would say that most of our most deep experiences connecting with another person, with the natural world, being immersed in our own activity, you look at them carefully, there's not much sense of self. And, and often there's no sense of self. You know, when we really uh, are in the, the depths of those experiences. There's a text that I wanted to share with you briefly, which is a powerful one. This is, this is a Tibetan text, called, and I'll read a passage from it. It's called The Prayer of Kuntazampo. And this is from the uh, Dzogchen tradition in Tibetan practice. And Kuntazampo is, in that tradition, something like what they call the primordial Buddha. You know, this is like a primordial Buddha outside of time. And the text itself is ultimately a text about compassion. But it starts by saying how delusion arises. And it's going to say, basically, that in the beginning, so to speak, we are one with the sacred. And people in other traditions would use other language, right? They would say we're one with God or whatever. And... uh, we're one with nature. And, uh, and there, there's not a sense of uh, fundamental separation. So here's the passage of the text. This is from, I don't know, this is from a long time ago, like maybe, I don't know, at least five or 600 years, maybe up to a thousand, I didn't check. <laughs> okay, so here's the text. In the beginning, Delusion arises in sentient beings. When awakened, non-dual awareness does not arise anymore. The mind becomes numb and dull. The failure to recognize awakened awareness is the first ignorance and the cause of every ill. Instantly unconscious, one's thoughts wander aimlessly. One is seized by hope and fear. This begets the duality of I and other, friend and enemy. And through clinging, this becomes habitual. Descending from that comes samsara, the increasing affictions 
of the five poisons, which are greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and envy, and so forth. The increasing affliction of the five poisons, there is no end to the activity of the five poisons. Whoa. (laughs) That's basically saying that we're in a, uh, we're not awake. That we're in a sense that we've departed from the sacred. You know, and this is uh, the unawake human condition. So the stages that are talked about here is first, there's some kind of disconnection from the awakened ground of being. Somehow we lose touch with that. Some say that children are in touch with that and they lose it and so forth. But that we, we somehow lose that. And what's interesting here, if you hear this trajectory away from awake awareness, the nature of practice is going to be to reverse that uh, process, which I've identified here as seven steps. The first is there's disconnection from the ground of awakened being. Then one begins, becomes more and more unconscious about this, numb and dull. One is taken over, thirdly, by an underlying hope and fear. In other words, we're fearful of the unpleasant and we hope for the pleasant. That becomes what organizes our experience. Duality comes in with that. There's self and other, uh, friend and enemy. Reactivity, grasping and pushing away, become habitual. One lives with the cycles of these habitual tendencies more and more. And these are connected with the dominance of certain qualities like greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and envy, which go on endlessly. So that's not an uplifting, (laughs) uh, what, uh, description or understanding of our normal state, right? It's saying that we're a little bit lost or a lot lost, right? Uh, Of course, this is done in in the context of saying that we can reverse that, that we can actually go back. So... Uh, that is, in a way, a, another way of describing it here more as a, almost like, you know, it's a little bit like the biblical fall from paradise, right? That's kind of some analogies to that. We were once in paradise, but we got kicked out or however we talk about it. So the second uh, focus is on what does the Buddha mind look like, as best we can tell from our own experience and from the teachings of the Buddha. And so this would be the Buddha is awake. The Buddha is connected with what I've just described as a kind of awakened awareness. Doesn't have an uh, independent, permanent, doesn't have a sense of self as independent, permanent, and separate. There's no greed, hatred, and delusion. There's not reactivity. And often, you know, in the actual text, the nature of awakening is described more negatively. It's going beyond that reactivity or it's going beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? So there's not a sense of self and other. And again, I'm going to say that we've all experienced that at different times. And the, the nature of our practice is to try to, again, see where we get stuck and increase our awake qualities. That's the simple nature of what we do. So more positively, we could say that the Buddha has a profound sense of interdependence and of being connected with all beings and of having that link be through love and wisdom. That's where we're aspiring to, right? A sense of interdependence guided by wisdom and love. It seems hard, doesn't it? But we get there. We get there at times. And what we're trying to do, I think, with Spirit Rock and this culture is to find ways to support our growth in those capacities. So we can remember from last time the beautiful text from the Buddha which expresses this quality of being awake and being, being full of metta. We can call that a kind of love. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. That's the Buddha mind. Radiating kindness over the entire world. Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths 
outwards and unbounded. So there's that quality of love, there's clear seeing, seeing self as a construction, that's often useful, but that is still a construction. Uh, The Buddha acts ethically, doesn't harm. And in a sense, the Buddha mind is beyond life and death. Again, maybe we can come back at some time and look more into that, the themes of death and dying, which are very profound in most spiritual traditions. When the Buddha awoke, he said, uh, he was asked actually, but he said, I have opened the door to the deathless. Okay? I have opened the door to a quality of being awake beyond life and death, beyond clinging to life, beyond being fearful of death. So that's a lot, right? That's, that's not maybe for most of us where we are day to day, right? But I think we're there at times. So the third area, how do we practice to get there? And here, it's pretty simple. Even if there are a lot of mysteries connected with this. So I think it's really it's very similar to what we looked at the last two times, The ways we practice are we see what gets us stuck on the one hand. We study that. And then on the other hand, we see what opens us up. And that's it. That's the nature of our practice. And we might focus on one more than the other. Uh, Here, I'm interpreting that as we see where we are caught in the thick self on the one hand. And then we see how to open up to a thinned out sense of self on the other. So I'll say a little bit about both of those and then we'll open it up further. So seeing what stands in the way. And last time when we were looking, last time we asked the question, what blocks the heart from manifesting love? And a lot of that is going to be exactly connected with the sense of a thick self, right? Fear, being judgmental, anger, strong views and stories, right? Negative uh, narratives, right? And this is what we need to study. And this is not always easy, right? Studying the thick self is not always fun. I, like to, I continually joke that this is not highlighted prominently in the Spirit Rock promotional literature. <laughs> Come, see how you get stuck and suffer. Look at 15 different ways that this happens. And pay us for that. <laughs> right? I mean, but it's actually a big part of what we do. You know, I, I continually also like to quote the Tibetan teacher Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche who says, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> right? So we, this, but this is it. This is part of it. We want to see where we get stuck. And again, Sometimes when we're beginning, it can be really helpful to focus on the positive and really develop that strongly. That was what I experienced when I first meditated. I experienced primarily really positive states. My mind got quiet. I felt calm. I felt peaceful, relaxed, wonderful. I mostly hung out there for quite a while. If someone had told me um, to look at my suffering and where I was stuck, if I had probably come to this very talk, I would have said, that's not for me. I'm here for the bliss, <laughs> right? And suffering is for other people. A lot of delusion, right? <laughs> I would say of myself, but that's kind of where I was. So they're definitely, it's definitely helpful sometimes to really focus on the positive. And we can do that. We can deliberately focus on cultivating beautiful states and openness and so forth. And we have to really pay some attention to not getting to what, to uh, overwhelm by looking at, at the stuck places, right? It's really important to have that balance. And if we've looked too much at the difficulties, it's really good sometimes just to not look there, focus on the positive, do that for a year or two and then come back <laughs> or a month or two or whatever, right? So, so we, can look, we can look at that uh, thick self uh, as it manifests in uh, reactivity, grasping, pushing away through uh, being judgmental, aversion, all these sorts of things. Uh, Self-image, self-consciousness. I'm in a situation, I get really self-conscious, pretty big sense of self. 
when I was first uh, doing teaching, that was a way the thick self manifested for me. I would sit up here and be pretty self-conscious. You know, like, what are they thinking? Everyone's looking at me. (laughs) Yipes. I remember the first time I ever gave a public talk, it wasn't here, but it was a long time ago. Uh, Luckily, I was sitting behind a desk that was higher than this one, and my knees were going back and forth in rapid movement because I was basically, maybe like many of you, kind of introverted. You know, public speaking was not what I thought would be my vocation, right? And and yet, uh, um, something's happened. <laughs> In any case, but self self consciousness is one of the forms. Uh, uh, the Zen teacher Dogen said, "To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things." So he said, "You have to study." Study the self continually. Just look at, look at when we get stuck. So this actually makes our getting stuck and even suffering, if it's in a workable place, interesting. We get interested in our stuckness. It changes our practice. We're not just trying to have bliss and relaxation, but we, there's a tremendous place for actually being interested and when we get a little stuck, when there's a thick sense of self. Again, we don't put that in the promotional material so much. I think we should in some way. Okay. We'll see if that happens. And partly it means that it's good when we're doing this a lot. Again, very important to pay attention to doing that which brings us balance and, and help. But it is hard. The, uh, the poet Yeats says it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own being than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. So then the other side of this is to find ways to develop the thin, more the sense of experiencing without much sense of self. And we uh, did that with the heart in various ways, like with the sense of loving kindness, compassion, and joy, cultivating those, often not much sense of self. We also looked at ways of opening the heart through being with the trees, the forest, with beauty, with art, with music, without much sense of self. Another way that is really connected with that that I find really helpful is to remember that sense of being in the flow. And this is where the the, uh, psychologist Csikszentmihalyi has that sense of the experience of flow that I, I like to talk about, which is a sense of when we're fully immersed in an experience, There's very little sense of self. We're totally with it. We're engaging with our best gifts, often fully. We're completely absorbed, and there's zero sense of self. And this might be, you know, playing music, dancing, listening to music, being with nature, being with people we're close to. How many of you can think very quickly of time when you were kind of in the flow with something that really was valuable to you. And think about that experience. Was there a sense of self? Was there a strong sense of self or were you just alive, right? And so that's one of the ways that we can develop this, we can develop this exploration. We can, uh, we can really cultivate more that sense of being in the flow. And we can do that both in daily life and in meditation. So I would say when you're in those experiences, you know, appreciate it and see if you can look at the nature of the experience. You can bring more of your experiences into being flow experiences. Try to be in the flow when you're just walking, taking a walk, when you're washing the dishes and so forth. Um, Picasso said that his art was like uh, a way of going into that. He didn't use the word flow, but he says, to draw, you must close your eyes and sing. It takes a very long time to become young. In other words, what we do in the flow states is we go beyond that construction of the self. Again, important for some reasons. And we find this in sports a lot. 
you know, the sense of the flow. They have a phrase for it in sports called being in the zone. You know, and uh, you can see that if you watch uh, very skilled athletes. You know. um, and then in a meditative way, I'll just be brief here, in a meditative way, we can also do this by trying to be with the flow of experience as much as possible without bringing a sense of self. Let me just be with a body sensation, a thought, much like that metaphor of the river. We're just watching the river. It's in front of us. We notice this, we notice this, we notice this. Increasingly without commentary, without pushing away anything, we notice, oh, that's unpleasant, but we don't make a self out of it, right? That's a little unpleasant. Just notice it, but we don't react. Something pleasant happens. We just watch it. And so this is the meditative way which we can, we could do in our meditation. Try to be with that flow of experience. I think that's basically where the meditation goes anyway. Increasingly, and this is the main way that the Buddha taught not self, which was just to be with the constituents of experience without bringing in reactivity, me and mine. Just watch the flow. Kind of like a scientist watching the natural flow of experience. Oh, there's a thought. Oh, a little bit of irritability. Oh, back to the breath, in and out, without, without much of a sense of self. So maybe I'll finish. This is, this is from uh, a contemporary teacher of the 20th century uh, from India named Sri Nisargadatta, very short. He says, when I look inside and I see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns. So we're in training. If you came here, we're in training. It's not a quick path for most of us. But we keep, I think we keep on working. And again, uh, the practices can be really seen as simple. That's how I like to approach this notion of self. Look at where the self is big. Study it. And and, uh, explore it. Sometimes when the self is big, it's because there's a wound and we need to heal it. Sometimes it's something we can let go of. So it's some complexities, which I'll go into more next time. See where the self is big, look at it, and then see if you can live at times from a sense of a thinned out self when you're in the flow, when you're meditating, and explore those states and appreciate them. And you're already doing that a lot every day. We're just not noticing them or appreciating them, I think. So that's the the guidance. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And we have time for uh, questions or comments, reflections. Maybe talking about even what you experienced in the meditation. Yeah, and we'll wait for the mic. We have one... uh, Maybe in the center here, and then on the on my left will be go could be next. Yeah. At the risk of maybe drawing you down a bird walk earlier, you you mentioned the uh, the biblical reference to the fall from paradise. Yeah. And uh, just for me personally, you know, being raised in uh, Christian background, basically, and a lot of um, getting stuck in that and trying to find the good and all that bad (laughs) in that heritage. Uh, so would you think of the, that analogy or a metaphor with the fall from paradise on an individual or perhaps a, a collective nature of, of self versus uh, non-self? I mean the, the uh, biblical story of paradise? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, gosh, I'm not a biblical scholar. <laughs> well, uh, how would I... I guess my, my question yeah. is if, and maybe we don't want to bring it up here, but if if the, uh, all the dangers and bad stuff around that little interp- literal interpretation that yeah. is so prevalent in society, if it was more just um, 
the uh, fall is actually um, an awareness of, of self and, and duality. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're leading to? Yeah, I, I raised it because it has some similarity to the Tibetan text that I read, and which is very clearly saying that there's a way that we are to use, hopefully with not too much risk, uh, Christian language, that we are, or biblical language, I should say, that we are in a fallen state. I think that, I I don't use that language typically. I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, we would say we are not awake or we're not fully awake. I would say we're all partly awake and partly asleep, which to me is maybe a more skillful way to use the language. But the, the positive aspect of that teaching is that our deep nature is awake. It's like we don't have to uh, go somewhere else than right here. And we don't have to construct awakening. Typically, awakening is more understood as uh, uncovering our eyes. Or it's more saying getting in touch with something which is already there. That's usually what the teaching is. And so that's more hopeful and positive. And so I think it is, so that's probably, that's more how I would want to phrase it than we're in a fallen state. I would say we're in a, we're, we're not awake, we're asleep in certain ways, but we're also awakening. And there's a complicated way, you know, that I, I tend also to have a more evolutionary view uh, of human development. You know, so that complicates things, but uh, so I think that there, you know, the, there's a possibility not just of individual awakening, but also of collective awakening. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I think the main, th- the main point is, is that uh, the, and this is really the core teaching of the Buddha, that everyone has in uh, one's own being the capacity for awakening. It's not foreign. It's right there. And somehow we, do, we uh, aren't there. And again, sometimes people have, you know, sometimes people come to meditation retreats and they have memories of, of touching deeper states as children. It's interesting. That sometimes happens because that, that is sometimes uh, possible. Yeah. You mentioned that sometimes um, construction of the self can be useful. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a really important point that I've just mentioned but not really explained. And it's, it's worthy of a much fuller expl- explanation, which I think I will do next time. Um, there's a quotation I like. This is from uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who is a very respected Buddhist monk and scholar, from, originally from the U.S. And he, he actually uh, gives a developmental sense of the self in which the self is useful in many, many ways. This is what he says. The issue is not, what is my true self? But what kind of perception of self is skillful and when is it skillful? And what kind of perception of not-self is skillful and when is it skillful? A sense of self is an important part of the practice. Especially a sense of self that encourages responsibility, heedfulness, and care. So he's basically saying, if you want to live ethically, it's good to have a sense of self. Because... That's where you, okay, I'm accountable. I'm responsible. I want accountability. I want someone to say, why didn't you do that? You know, that is, there's a sense of self there, right? And he's saying that's important at a certain stage of practice and development, right? And then he goes on to say, sometimes you have to do one thing at one stage and turn it around and erase it at another. (laughs) The path to the unconditioned is conditioned, In the Buddhist terminology, it is fabricated. In the attainment of awakening, you put aside both self and not self. So here he's saying that developmentally, a sense of self is very important to be responsible. You know, we need a sense of self to say, I'm going to meditate every day. We could say that's a kind of sense of self. And, uh, you know, a sense of self developmentally is important for children. Children who don't develop a sense of self are in trouble, right? And, uh, and there are also ways in which a sense of self can be diminished socially. 
You know, Dr. King used to talk about the importance of developing a sense of somebodiness, right? And when you have social forces that deprive you of a sense of self, coming to that sense of self is really crucial, you know? And so, for example, um, I think think it's also very uh, common with gender conditioning. I mean, a lot has changed, but there's still gender conditioning in which uh, women maybe said, you know, put yourself last, take care of others. That's very common conditioning, right? And there, the sense of self can be suppressed, right? In that kind of conditioning. That's not healthy, right? Then we would say, let's develop that healthy sense of self. And only when it's developed can you talk about going beyond it. So there there are dimensions in psychological development. There are dimensions related to social conditioning. Does that make some sense? How many people can relate to that about gender conditioning? Does that make some sense? You know, if you get conditioning all the time, your needs are not so important. Take care of others, right? You get that conditioning over and over, then uh, that's going to suppress a sense of a healthy sense of self. So, yeah. So it's a big, it's a big uh, uh, qualification to everything I've said. Yeah. Who has the microphone? Okay, anyone else want to? Okay. So on the way up, <clears throat> I live in the East Bay and it's a lot of traffic to drive through. So I was listening a to an audio, I was listening to an audio book and it happened to be Shantideva um, and the part that sort of connects to this is at one point he says that you need as I this is believe me paraphrasing at the very best um, but you need a sense of self to perform selfless acts mm-hmm. to achieve merit and help others mm-hmm. but that if you are honored for those selfless acts and you desire and cling to the honor, you have defeated all merit that you've generated. Yeah. Kind of a kind of a difficult circle to dance in. That's interesting. Interesting paradoxes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I think initially one might need a sense of self maybe to be it might come in, but I imagine in in uh, you know very highly developed beings there may not be much sense of self and they're being selfless. Or maybe think of yourself at your best moments of helping others, right? Was there much sense of self? But what I especially like is the humorous dimension of uh, um, uh, taking credit for being selfless. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> You know that I think I think anytime we have humor and paradox, we're, we're probably in good place. Right? As I as I was thinking of when I was uh, meditating, um, I mean, I remember once one of my teachers said, "I want you to be aware, but don't do anything, don't meditate." You know, and I loved it. And uh, and at a certain point, I remember, you know, I was re- I wasn't doing any formal meditation, but I was very present. And at a certain point, I said. I'm doing non-doing really well. <laughs> right, and so I think, I think I love that. I love ending kind of on a, a note of humor and paradox because uh, when you try to, that's, that's why I like to emphasize all this in a practical way because when you try to think it out completely, you get into a little bit of paradox and conceptual mess. Okay, so that's why I'm suggesting explore it practically, look for the thick self, study it, maybe explore some of the nuances and qualifications we've, we've looked at, and then see if you can experience some with the thinned out self. And again, there, there are complexities we haven't mentioned, but that's, that would be the guidance for next time. You know, um, next time is going to be a month. So you, you have a month to, be, to explore the self and... You know, we'll come back. How many of you would like to, uh, in the, at least in the next week, ex- do you know follow these practices with the thick self and the thin thinning of the self? Okay. 
So let's take a moment and just, if you're interested in that, how might you do that in the next week if you're interested in that practice? Could just do one of them. What appeals to you to explore this territory? And we finish by recognizing that we practice both for ourselves and for others, ultimately for all beings, which includes us both in the ordinary way and in a non-ordinary way. So thank you for bearing with me in this sometimes tricky territory and to be continued. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.